بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. So jazakumullah khair to all of you for taking out your evening to be with us. I think uh, this is a, a pressing discussion at a pressing time. Uh, it's no small thing that somebody like the American President Donald Trump is visiting here in the UK. And it's important that we, we, we think a little bit about, you know, what that means, uh, not just in terms of globally, but even to us as individuals, you know, what is our, our relationship to this to, to his presence here, to his coming over here, as British citizens. I mean, somebody might say, well, what's it got to do with you guys? You're, uh, you're all the way in the UK. You know, why would you be even interested in this issue? But I think that there are some really important discussions to be had. Uh, so for a start, I just want to say, uh, you know, Zakmalakhaya to Islam 21C, who are co-sponsoring this event with Cage today. Islam 21C was set up to, uh, a decade ago to articulate Islam in the 21st century. It is uh, a leading website in the UK interweaving current affairs, uh, news, spiritual and legal and theological topics for an audience that goes into the millions. CAGE is an advocacy group uh, here in the UK that campaigns against discriminatory state policies and advocates for due process and the rule of law. So today, just in some of my introductory remarks, I want to talk a little bit about this book. It's called On Tyranny by an author named Timothy Snyder. And what he does is that he provides, it's a very short book, he provides 20 lessons from the 20th century. It's his kind of reflections on, um, on how tyranny manifests itself. And inshallah, throughout the, uh, the course of the evening, I'll be reflecting on various lessons that he draws from, from these 20 lessons. So lesson one is do not obey in advance. So he says, most of the power of authoritarianism is freely given. We give it up, just like that. In times like these, like the ones we're in today, individuals think ahead about what a more repressive government will want and then offer themselves without being asked. A citizen who adapts in this way is teaching power what it can do. This is an important point, And this is actually the, the, the story in many ways of people like Donald Trump, that because of the way that democratic institutions work, the power that is given to these authoritarian figures, to these tyrants, is actually freely given. We, we acquiesce that power because the process of them coming to power seems seemingly is legitimate. And so whatever politics they bring, whatever baggage they bring, seems like a legitimate process. And I think today or tonight, we're going to question the basis of this idea, this, the notion that, that just because the process might seem legitimate, that everything else that comes with it then becomes legitimate too. So what does Timothy Snyder say? The very first line and he has in that chapter after telling us this lesson is that anticipatory obedience is a political tragedy. To give that obedience in advance because that the process of coming to power is legitimate is a political tragedy. And I think we should think about that because that's what's happened here. Trump came to power and everybody granted him the authority to do so. He is the leader of America, but obedience to him should never have been given just like that. So 
when we think about Trump, we have to remember certain things. It's not just that he is the democratically elected leader of America. It's that he's also someone who has advocated for more extreme versions of torture than have ever previously been practiced by, the American, by American governments. I'm very, very open about that. He's admitted to grabbing women by their private parts without any repercussion on him whatsoever. He's been openly racist and bigoted. And for those of you who haven't seen it yet, I very much recommend Googling Trump the snake poem. If you watch this, you will be horrified by the kind of invective and narrative that is, no, that is now okay as part of the, the narrative of um, what is acceptable uh, publicly in the US. When you compare people who are fleeing from their countries, who are finding difficult circumstances, who are coming to your country and contributing to snakes, there is something very, very wrong as the leader of the free world, supposedly, in, uh, in the position that you've been gr given and granted. But it's also important for us to think about how he got there, because people, they treat Trump as if he's an anomaly. And uh, a book that was written last year by Naomi Klein, she writes, actually, Trump is not an anomaly. He's a natural conclusion to everything that came before him. He's a conclusion from Reagan through to Bush, through to Clinton, through to Bush uh, uh, Jr., and now uh, through Obama and to Trump. In fact, she holds Obama to account in many ways as well, saying that if we look at the current state of immigration policies in America, actually Obama in many ways was a lot worse than Trump even is. And so we forget these sometimes, that actually Trump isn't an anomaly. He has built his power base off the back of what already existed there. And we, and we need to understand how that works. And my final point is, actually, we have to understand how societies themselves function. Because in another book, again from, um, from earlier this year, actually, called How Democracies Die, the authors talk about the fact that in all Western liberal democracies, there is always a 30% far-right voter base that exists in nearly every single liberal democracy. The purpose of democracy is to shut these guys out, to gatekeep them out of power. And what happens is that you have these demagogue figures that arise, people like Trump, people like Mussolini and Hitler and so on and so forth. What we don't realize is actually every, in every election there is always this, this figure that, that comes up who appeals to that 30% base. But what happens sometimes is that their narrative becomes so strong that the 30% turn into a 40%. And as you all know full well, as soon as you hit that 40% mark, you're now looking at power. This is the way that liberal democracies work. And so we have to also question the way in which our societies structure themselves and the way that we allow for far-right narratives to be fed forming the very societies that we live in today. Now, our first speaker is uh, Brother Mozenbeck, who many of you know. He's a former Guantanamo survivor. He's the outreach director of CAGE. Uh, he has been to more towns in the UK than I could even possibly ever think about or name, speaking about our work, really trying to raise awareness about um, what is taking place. And as an introduction, to, uh, to Brother Marzam's talk, 
I want to read another lesson from Timothy Snyder's book. And that is, and this is lesson number 18. Snyder says, be calm when the unthinkable arrives. Modern tyranny is terror management. When the terrorist attack comes, remember that authoritarians exploit such events in order to consolidate power. The sudden disaster that requires the end of checks and balances, the dissolution of opposition parties, the suspension of freedom of expression, the right to a fair trial, and so on, is the oldest trick in the Hitlerian book. Do not fall for it. If anybody has lived through the Hitlerian trick, it's Brother Muazzam, and I invite him to come up and speak. Jazakumullah khair. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulillah. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'antun sahla wa anta taj'al hazna idha shi'ta sahla. Brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakumullah khair to Asim for introducing me as when the unthinkable comes. Be afraid. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, an orange... Um, an orange man. And as you all know, in Guantanamo, we, the prisoners, were dressed in orange jumpsuits. And the color orange is the only thing that we have in common with Donald Trump. Because everything else is the entire opposite. Uh, we often talk about United States foreign policy based upon those people that have been elected by the United States electorate as one that is some ways bipolar. And what do I mean by this? People think on the face of it that prior to Donald Trump, you had the first election of a black man in the history of the United States of America, a country that has a history uh, that's very sordid in terms of the abuse of other people based upon how their perception is, their color, uh, and what their background is. In fact, one of the things that my lawyer first told me in Guantanamo, Clive Stafford-Smith, he said, you know, the Americans, they have a view of black people. He said, when they look at black people, they detest them, they hate them as a nation, and the proof of that is slavery. And when they look at the Soviet Union or the Russians, they don't hate them, but they fear them. And so you had the buildup of the Cold War and all the weapons of mass destruction facing each other, and in the worst point, the Cuban Missile Crisis that could have led to World War III. He said, but when they look at Muslims, they fear them and they hate them. And that's evidenced in the war on terror and it's evidenced where you are right now because he told me this in Guantanamo. And so you see, this isn't just about Donald Trump. In fact, as Asim said correctly, he's just a manifestation of what's been going on over the past several decades. But I'm gonna tell you this story of uh, what Donald Trump is through the prism of the so-called war on terror. And Donald Trump has come to power based upon the opposite of what Obama said. He said that he wants to stop immigration, have a ban on people coming from certain Muslim countries, turn back America to what it's supposed to have been, make America great again, and so forth. And in addition to this, whilst we're kind of sleeping or not, or not concerned, the drone strike policy around the Muslim world that began um, with simply strikes on Afghanistan and Pakistan and extended then to Somalia and to Yemen and to now to Libya and to Syria has gone on. 
In other words, the killing of people without charge or trial continues by a country who detained, which detained people without charge or trial. The country that itself has as part of its constitution the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta is not part of the British constitution per se, but it was written here in 1215. And it is lauded as the most important institute of Britishness in this country, where the rule of law applies, where nobody's detained without charge or trial, except that they're judged by a court of their peers. The United States, however, has this part, um, part of their constitution. And yet the United States is the one that is primarily guilty of detaining people without charge or trial. But the first condition of this is, I made the reference to slavery. The first condition for you to be a prisoner in Guantanamo is what? The very first condition. Is it that you have to be a terrorism suspect? No, because there are no members of the real IRA there, or the continuity IRA there, or the Tamil Tigers there, or Michigan militia, or a whole host of other far-right organizations or individuals that have carried out bombings and killings across Europe or America. So the first criteria isn't that you have to be a terrorism suspect. The first criterion is that you must be a Muslim. You must. That's the first. The second criterion is that you're a terrorism suspect. And why is that important? Because it was during the Bush administration when they launched the war on terror and said you're either with us or, or against us or with the terrorists, a whole series of nations complied with and were complicit with the United States of America. And a great number, in fact, the majority that was involved in the renditions program were Muslim nations. Pakistan, Afghanistan, Morocco, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Mauritania, the list is, goes on and on and on. You can mention so many countries, Muslim countries like Azerbaijan that was involved in the renditions process. Indonesia involved in the renditions program. Malaysia involved in the renditions program. The intelligence services of almost every country you can think of from the Muslim world involved in interrogating or abusing prisoners in Guantanamo and beyond. They were all complicit. And that it's important that we remember that America couldn't have done this alone. It had many accomplices in this crime. And if you'll remember in the early days, they refused to say, refused to accept that what was happening was torture. Remember this. They said clearly that all of these prisoners that are from around the world, from China to Europe and everything in between, that these prisoners all read the Al-Qaeda manual, the Manchester manual, in which it states that if you're captured by a Western country, you must claim that you were tortured. Because in Western nations that uphold the rule of law and where torture is a crime, it's going to damage them. So you must do this. They claimed that we were at all memorized this and were practicing it. And they continued to do so up until very recently. And so under the Bush, under the Bush administration, you'll remember, the most senior legal advisors, can you imagine, the most powerful lawyers, the attorneys general, gave the advice to the government, to Bush, that if it isn't, if it isn't organ failure or death, it's not torture. That's why and how you can take a medieval practice like waterboarding, which in Spanish is called tortura del agua, torture of the water, and actually say, no, it's not torture. And you've crafted very cleverly through your legal teams and said, we do not torture. We uphold the rule of law. And all you do is change the meaning and the goalposts and never accept. 
So when Obama comes, here's the, here's the, uh, the master play. Remember, it's the same administration, it's the same CIA in operat operative regardless. He comes along and he says on his campaign trail, we will close Guantanamo. We will put an end to torture. We will bring back to America its standing in the world community. These are all, as Allah says, يَقُولُونَ بِأَفْوَاهِمْ مَا لَيْسَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ They say upon their tongues that's not within their hearts. And so what does he do? He institutes this policy while all along he says we tortured some folks and the, that torture even led to the rise of ISIS. He admitted that. It was an unintended consequence, the torture was. Nonetheless, he puts in this um, immunity that anybody that's involved in the torture of these people will be immune from prosecution. Now think about this. He's a constitutional lawyer. He knows that torture and false imprisonment are war crimes, serious war crimes. But he says nobody will get prosecuted. And that's why and how the next president of the United States can come along and say, I believe torture works. If I was able to, I would waterboard and a lot more. Bearing in mind that Obama accepted and recognized that torture did take place. In 2014, the United States Senate published a report. Imagine this. Imagine you committed a serious crime and you did a report about it and said, oh, yes, I'm coming clean. I did do it. The United States Senate did this. They published this report, listed 119 individuals they'd tortured, which was just the tip of the iceberg. And that was it. An exercise in transparency and openness, no prosecutions for war crimes. And that is how Trump can stand today with all of his partners, all of his accomplices, including Britain, and say that torture works. I would waterboard a lot more. And in fact, at the beginning of this year, he signs an order putting a stamp of approval on everything he said. I say what I believe, and I believe what I say, and Guantanamo will remain open. That's what he's told the world. He's made this decision clearly. On the way here uh, from Birmingham, we saw a whole cavalcade of vehicles, of armored vehicles and police and so forth. And we were, it was obvious it was Trump passing us. When we were coming into here just now, again, we saw um, Chinook-type aircraft, I mean, bigger than Chinooks. And all of this is a show and a demonstration of imperial hubris, of arrogance, of this is what we can do and we will do and continue to do, and you can do nothing about it because an orange man is in power. And because our leaders, our leaders here, uh, um, Theresa May or whoever deigns to meet this man, and this is, remember, just one aspect, the endorsement. This man endorses war crimes, just so that you understand that the types of people that used waterboarding in the past are from Pinochet in um, Chile, the Khmer Rouge, who carried out more killings than Hitler did in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, after the Vietnam War. Hitler himself and a whole series of other people, including ISIS, were waterboarding their captives. And this man is the one who endorses it. So this is where we are today in 2018. We have our, uh, our government welcoming him, our, uh, our, our um, establishment 
welcoming this man. And that's why it's so important for us as Muslims primarily, because the effects of what's been going on throughout the war on terror began with Bush, continued with Obama, and is now implemented as policy with um, Trump remains, and that's why we must stand up against it, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Salam. Jazakallah khair, Muazzam. I think, you know, that's a really useful starting point for us to think about um, this evening because, you know, what he's really done is shown us that there is a um, kind of a worldwide impunity taking place in relation to, you know, how um, torture, how abuse, how war is, is prosecuted. And, you know, sometimes we're left with the feeling there's nothing that we can really do about it. But, inshallah, by the end of the evening, we will give the exact opposite message, bi'adhanillah. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Salman Butt, uh, who has a doctorate in biochemistry from Imperial College. He is the former London chair of FOSIS, uh, the editor of Islam 21C. Uh, and he's currently pursuing a legal challenge uh, against the UK government for calling him an extremist, no less, uh, in some good company here today. Uh, and I guess when I was thinking about Timothy Snyder's book and what Salman's going to speak about, uh, lesson four really stood out to me. And lesson four is take responsibility for the face of the world. And Snyder says, the symbols of today enable the reality of tomorrow. Notice the swastikas and the other signs of hate. Do not look away and do not get used to them. Remove them yourself and set an example for others to do so. And Saman's gonna speak about uh, the rise of the far right and the way in which their rise has, has actually allowed for things such as structural Islamophobia. So, perfectly in tune, please, Saman. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. As of this morning, I checked the Oxford Islamic, not Islamic, Oxford English Dictionary, not Islamic yet. I checked the Oxford English Dictionary and the word stupid wasn't in it. I was looking because I was, I was looking for a word to describe what I believe is happening slowly to um, our human species uh, in the last few years or decades. Uh, I was asked to speak about the rise of the far right, and I thought I'd do it from uh, an angle which I'm in, in particular interested about. Right. So, and that is, um, you know. When the internet went mainstream, okay, people were talking about how we're entering a different type of economy, how people are going out of the, uh, they already went out of the fields, uh, they went into the factories, and they were going out of the factories into the information economy. But some people disagreed vehemently with this. They said, we're not actually living in an information economy, because uh, economics, by definition, is the study of how a society deals with its scarce resources. And anyone who knows the internet knows that if there's one thing that there's no scarcity of, it's information. So these people, and they make a very convincing argument. They say that 
we don't actually live in an information economy, but we live in an attention economy. And this is intimately linked to the rise of Trump. And I hope, hopefully, in like 60 seconds to two minutes, hopefully it will become clear why. I don't want to lead you into this rabbit hole for too long. You see, the internet is dominated by the algorithms of very few mega corporations. Google, Facebook, maybe Apple as well. And each of them are competing for a slice of your attention. You all know when you go to your phone to check something, you hear that characteristic you know, notification bell, which has you know, years, if not decades, of uh, psychological studies gone into it just to make the right type of bell, you know, to capture your attention and distract you from what you're doing. We all know that when we go onto our phones, Sometimes we just forget why we even uh, picked up the phone in the first place. Because you check this notification, that WhatsApp group, then this Telegram, and then this email, and then so forth, Facebook. And by the time you know it, you've spent half an hour, 40 minutes on your phone. And this is by design. Social media organizations, corporations, they actually employ in attention engineers who utilize hundreds of years' worth of um, collective wisdom in psychology to keep our attention on that site. These aren't evil people. Some of the greatest minds in programming, in, in, uh, uh, in uh, software engineering and so forth, are taken into this industry. Why? To keep, to increase that key statistic, time spent on site. Why is that important? The techno-sociologist, that's a thing now, uh, Zeynep Tufeki, a uh, Turkish woman, I believe, she said that these artificial intelligence algorithms, which are by now thousands or millions of rows and columns, matrices, they're completely out of control. If uh, the creator looks at them to try and, you know, rein them in, it's like uh, maybe a brain surgeon looking at a, a brain scan. It's that complicated and complex now. What's the problem? So what? Some might say, what's this got to do with anything? One more study out of Stanford. A professor, Michael Kaczynski, he said... Uh, in his research, he's, he took 10 Facebook likes, 10 pages that you like on Facebook uh, from uh, a large number of uh, participants. And he was able to predict some aspects of that person's personality better than the average coworker, just by knowing 10 Facebook pages that you've clicked like on. By knowing 150 Facebook pages that you've liked, he was able to predict parts of your personality more than your own mother. And by knowing 300 Facebook pages that you like, he was able to predict even more uh, meticulously aspects of your personality better than the average spouse. He said our smartphone 
is a vast psychological questionnaire that we are constantly filling out, both consciously and unconsciously. Now ask yourself this question. In a world where companies are competing for your and my attention, and they're willing to do anything to get it, not only that, they've outsourced this attention engineering to artificial intelligence algorithms, machine learning algorithms that are too complex beyond control now. In that type of world, where they, they're competing for you on my attention, where they have access to information about our most intimate personality traits, what type of world does that create? We all know the uh, scandal with Cambridge Analytica and the Trump campaign. And we all saw the, you know, the, maybe some might say the rehearsed outrage at some people, um, you know, uh, showing, uh, showing outrage. How can Cambridge Analytica be doing all of this targeted advertisement to, you know, uh, Trump, potential Trump voters based on psychological profiles? Not only that, they were specifically targeting areas with significant black and minority populations to give them tailored targeted messages to not go out and vote, to try and deactivate them and um, pacify them. We saw that artificial intelligence, these algorithms, algorithms are able to make an artificial in, uh, reality around us as well. Max Stossel, who was a um, social media uh, expert, he did an experiment. He asked two friends, two different friends from two different backgrounds to Google the same thing. And Google is something that we all go to now, unfortunately. Anytime you want to know something, we just Google it. He asked them to write this question into Google. How many refugees committed crimes in Europe? For friend number one, it came up with all types of alarming statistics on the front page of Google for them. Right? This many percentage of Syrian refugees commit uh, crime in Germany. This many hundred thousands of refugees you know, uh, in, in this country or that country wreaking havoc. Daily Express, Fox News, that kind of stuff. Alarming, misleading statistics. Friend number two, however, received information from reputable <coughs> sources, uh, pure research, polls, uh, academic research, downplaying the statistical significance of the, 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 the dangerousness of uh, immigra immigrants or refugees. Right? Now the thing is, both people put the same thing into the Google search algorithm. And both people, because of what Google knew about them, were given a completely different idea of reality. And in our day and age, in the information age, in the attention economy age, this is how many of us, not most of us, this is how our reality is built around us. The same happens with, you can say, with Brexit, with any, any political or polarizing issue. Same input, different outputs. So what we find is we're increasingly living in isolated, siloed realities from one another, from people living in the same street as us, uh, 
polarized, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Not only that, just wrapping up, just five minutes left. <laughs> just finishing now. Muslim five minutes. Uh, I mentioned Zainab Tufeki, right? Not only are we competing in this uh, attention economy, but there's something a bit more malicious that the artificial intelligence algorithms have done, which is which is which explains Trump as a phenomenon and Brexit. She went on YouTube to look for campaign videos of Trump. And eventually, you know that also watch? When you finish a YouTube video, also watch this. This is a proprietary algorithm from Google. Okay, nobody knows uh, what goes into it. Eventually, she kept clicking those and she ended up at right, uh, far-right white supremacist videos. She started off on a different type of video, pro-Bernie Sanders, and she ended up at wacky left-wing conspiracy theorist videos. She watched a video about vegetarianism, and she ended up at a video about veganism. As though YouTube, uh, you're not extreme enough for YouTube. You're not hardcore enough. So this, I think, from my particular angle, I think something that we're interested in, see, this polarization, you know, this is something that we, we have to be very careful of. And um, Brother Rabani will give us some practical uh, tips on how to, you know, go from here. Inshallah. Sorry for going over time. Salman. Um, I mean, in, in light of Salman's uh, talk, I would definitely recommend uh, a book called Algorithms of Oppression by uh, Professor Safia Noble, where she details exactly how uh, algorithms within um, the internet, especially, they reinforce structural racism. So just one example that she gives is that if you, if you type in unprofessional hair into, uh, into your Google search, uh, into Google Images, what you'll find is lots of pictures of black women with perfectly uh, well-groomed uh, Afro uh, hair, but it's considered unprofessional to have that. So it's, it's, it, there's a lot of fascinating research in that, but it also shows you how, you know, so much of the world that we live in is constructed by certain notions of what it is to, to be a citizen in the world, what it means to be an okay citizen, like a, a, a human being in the world. And unfortunately, that world doesn't include people who often look like us. Um, so it's important that we understand not only what happens against us as Muslims, but what's happening to other communities as well. Uh, and you know, in that vein, I wanted to introduce our next speaker, uh, who is Dr. Uthman Latif, uh, who has a doctorate uh, which specialized in the merits of uh, Al-Quds, of Jerusalem, and uh, the poetry from the periods of cru the Crusades here, has a book that's very much on that same uh, topic uh, called The Cutting Edge of the Poet's Sword, which uh, I've read and is a wonderful piece of scholarship. Um, and finally, he has a forthcoming book, inshallah, on empathy and conflict, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. Now, uh, before uh, Dr. Latif's talk, the lesson that I extracted from Timothy Snyder's book is lesson number 16, which is learned from peers in other countries. He says, keep up your friendships abroad or make new friends in other countries. The present difficulties in the United States are an element of a larger trend and no country is going to find a solution by itself. So inshallah, what Dr. Latif is gonna be speaking about is how we make ta'awun, how we cooperate with other groups within 
an Islamic guideline within Islamic principles, you know, because we talk about uh, ideas around intersectionality and so on and so forth within a social justice world. But I mean, what does that mean from from our perspective as as Muslims? You know, how do we build that cooperation and those alliances? Uh, <laughs> In, in 1975, Muhammad Ali was uh, invited to give a speech at a Harvard graduation ceremony. And so during his speech, he was, uh, he was asked to read a poem, because of course Muhammad Ali was also a great poet as well as being a great boxer. We know, of course, that, as Brother Asu mentioned beginning, that Donald Trump is a great fan of poetry because of, you know, the, uh, what is it, the snake? And it's, in fact, a repurposing of a poem that had nothing to do with anti-immigration. Oscar Brown, the, the author of the snake song, was not a poet, and his song had nothing to do with anti-immigration. It was a repurposing of that, uh, of that song to an anti-immigration poem uh, what made Muhammad Ali's poem was not this, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the genius nature of the way that he stole the idea and repurposed uh, a poem or, or, an, or a narrative into a poem. It was not that. Muhammad Ali, when he was asked in 1975 to read a poem at this graduation ceremony of these clever individuals, he composed and said, perhaps the greatest, the shortest poem in human history. The shortest poem in human history, made of two words and two syllables and four letters with a full rhyme. He said, me, we. That's it. And that's his poem. Muhammad Ali, 1975, me, we. It is that sentiment of me, we, of myself and togetherness that is a motivational element, the factor, the, the stimulus, the impetus for all of these remarkable cases you see of, of rescuing. In any case of turmoil, whenever you have turmoil like a genocide or a mass murder, disturbance, social disturbance, you usually have four groups of people emerge in society. You have the perpetrators of that, you have the victims of that, you have the bystanders of that, and you have the rescuers of that. The rescuers are always the, the minority people because it requires courage for you to break away from the mold and do something different than other people are doing and to say something and to, to be somebody different, uh, to challenge the status quo, to be a rescuer is something remarkably unique. Muhammad Ali was saying, me, we meaning myself and you, myself and togetherness. We don't live on this planet alone. And Allah in the Quran, he says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا الناس. We made you a middle nation, so you would be witnesses over the people. We do not live alone, isolated. We live together in communities. And it is in that community spirit. If you look, for example, what happened in... Uh, Bosnia, yesterday we, we reflected back on those horrendous days of rape, mass rape, and mass murder, and genocide, and killing, and indifference, and the most severe of cruelty. We looked back on that yesterday. 
There was in Bosnia the element of the Kumki uh, Satu, if I remember, and that was in fact a Turkish word for neighborhood in Bosnia, Turkish word for neighborhood. And in Bosnia, in fact, you had far fewer cases of people who would break from the mold and decide to rescue it. Far, but you still had them, nevertheless. You had small cases of individuals who tried to do something to rescue people who were suffering or, or victims of injustice and killing and mass murder and rape and everything else. In the Holocaust, in Albania, you had examples of the Bisa. The Bisa was an ethnic and ethical code, ethnic and ethical code of of, uh, of fulfilling the rights of others, the Bisa. And so Muslims of Albania, for example, when the Jews came as refugees into Tirana, the capital of Albania, they moved them out into the rural areas, the countryside, so they could find safety away from the Nazis. They did something to rescue people, to save the lives of others. In Rwanda, amazing, 1994, amazing. 1994, the genocide in Rwanda, up to a million people killed in 90 days. Hutus on the run on a hunt for, for Tutsis. But the Muslims were like 4%, 3% of that country. But they realized, hold on, we don't live alone. We have a human Muslim Islamic social responsibility to be there for others, to look out for others. And so amazing, in, in the first case you had the the Kim Kisatu, you had the, uh, the case of the, uh, the Bisa in Albania, and in this case you had Tabhiya. Mufti Salih Habisama in, in Rwanda gave this call to all the Muslims in all the mosques in the radio stations. Your role today, when you're seeing something as horrendous as this campaign of torture, of execution, of lynching, lynching, hacking to death, mass rape, mass murder, is to, is to remember that you're a Muslim. And when you're a Muslim, you have a choice. Either you would be on the side of dhulam and injustice, and that is wadu shayfi ghayri mawdi, that is to place something that doesn't belong there. Or you have a choice to be on the other side, on the side of those who are thinking about akhirah number one, Allah divine accountability, Allah will ask all of us, what did we do in that situation? But then to also remember that we have human beings living amongst us. Human beings, victims. Whether they're Jewish people in the ghettos, or whether they're Tutsis on the run from the Hutus, right? They are human beings, and we have responsibility towards them. And Allah made us an ummah of witnessing unto others. Now to be a witness, of course, does not mean that you're, uh, you're, you're passive. It's an active and activated response to be a witness unto others. That means you would try and put yourself, number one, empathetically in that person's situation. What does it mean to be that person? Perspective taking. But more important than that, of course, because we don't always get it right in that respect, is to try and alleviate that person's suffering, to alleviate that person's troubles and problems. In, in the life of our Prophet, وسلم, he was 20 years old. 20 years old, in Mecca, when a man came, you know, this man was from a tribe that was not important. It was an unimportant, it was a lesser, lower tribe. And so he came along and he had this, uh, you know, he, he had this uh, transaction with somebody and the person said, you know, come back after the Hajj season and then we will, I will give you the money. And so the man said, okay, that's fair enough, sounds good. And so he comes back after Hajj season and he goes to the man and he says, 
to him uh, come back later. And so he waited still for them for later. And then he, he says the same thing. And it went on and on. Until the man was isolated by himself, thinking, well, I, I need my money. <laughs> but I'm not getting my money back. And so there was a decision that was made. This is why when I look at all of you amazing, great people, Allah Akbar, because this is, a, this is a conscious decision you made. This is tawfiq from Allah, your juhud, your effort, conscious decision you made. This small group of people gathered in one, in one home. And our Prophet was amongst them, and he was 20 years old. Imagine 20 years old, 20 years before the beginning of his nubuwa. And he said later on, he described it himself. He said, لَقَدْ شَهِدْتُ فِي دَارْ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ بَنْ جُدَعَانْ حِلْفًا I was لَقَدْ شَهِدْتُ Meaning I was not, I, I saw or even I witnessed, I was participant too. I was participant too. I was involved in, in the home of this man, Abdullah ibn Juda'an, Hilfan, like a pact, a treaty, an alliance. And he said that, uh, And if I was given a choice between being in that home and entering amongst this alliance, amongst the people, or having a herd of of red camels, I would choose to be in that room. I would choose to be in that room. He said, if I was called to that same pact, that same bond making, that same sense of togetherness, me, we, today in Islam, I would respond to that. And so if you think, subhanAllah, here's our Prophet telling us, and he even then he says, تَحَالَفُوا he says, go and fulfill the pacts. Make these alliances with people. Make these good alliances where your cause is the same. Where you both have a concern for the wrongdoing unto others. Make those good alliances. Think strategically, think practically. Because if you don't do that, then the ones who are wrongdoers, oppressors, will always have an ascendancy, always have a strength over those who are wronged. And remember, we're not the only victims in this. Allah made us a great ummah. And the great ummah has a great role, has a great task. Allah made us an ummah of rahmah, an ummah of mercy. All of this is being described of the zulm, of the torture, of the oppression, of the waterboarding, all of this is the complete opposite of everything we stand for as Muslims. Everything our Prophet brought for us. Allah describes, We send you as a rahmah for all the alameen. If he's a rahmah for all the alameen, this completely does away with everything to do with rahmah. And it is our job therefore as Muslims to bring back, to try and restore. When the people would gather in you know, Munich, or places small groups of people like Sophia Scholl and the White Rose Movement and small others, Albania, Rwanda. It was because they had in their minds, whatever is happening is crazy. Whatever is happening is horrendous, terrible, sinister, evil. 
But we have a role as Muslims not to be the perpetrators, not to be the victims and be in the state of victimhood, but to be the rescuers and not to be the bystanders. May Allah grant all of us strength. May we continue coming to these places. I feel so happy. I feel, I feel as if I have a, the feeling. I, you imagine that the Prophet in, in, his, in the house of Abdullah ibn Jada'an, you know, a few of them, they're making this thing. We're gonna, this man who doesn't have his rights, he isn't getting his money. What can we do? And they did it together. And they put all their hands in perfume. And it was and it made a mark on the Kaaba. It was like a way of saying, we all support this man. If we have the same attitude, it would mean something. A man called Stephanus Sell died in 2011. He wrote a book called Time for Outrage, Indignes Vous, in French. And it was outrage over torture. He wrote the book at the age of 91. He died at the age of 93, if I remember. And it was like his last testament to humanity. Outrage over poverty. It's our concern that people are poor. It's our concern. Outrage over racism is our concern. Outrage over abuse, torture. Outrage over what's happening in Guantanamo. The wars, all of that is our concern. And he ends, in fact, like the brother was saying before me, Dr. Salman, reminded me of his words. His last line was, we call for a mass public uprising against the means of mass communication. That's what he says. That offer nothing but mass consumption as a prospect for our youth, general amnesia, and the outrageous, outrageous competition of all against all. We'll just be at each other's throats, killing each other because we're concerned about money and these things. We have a greater purpose, a higher calling. May Allah allow all of us to fulfill it. You know, uh, some, <laughs> I'm very, very guilty that whenever Dr. Uthman Latif uh, speaks, I always give him a little bit of extra time. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, the rest of you just aren't as good. <laughs> um, you know, Dr. Uthman, I, you know, when I think about um, the statement, so cooperate. Uh, on on goodness, on righteousness, and God consciousness, right? That for me is like a two-part process, right? So cooperate on righteousness. But you know, when you think about it, you can't really cooperate with your own in-house group. It's not like I can cooperate with Robani. We're in the same organization. We're already cooperating. We're, we're part of the same clique. We have the same mentality on so many things. So I can't really cooperate with him. Who do I cooperate with? I have to cooperate and bring close to me those who aren't exactly inside my in-group. Okay, that takes effort. That takes courage. It takes the ability of seeing past what our differences are and saying, I'm willing to cooperate with you, but then with a boundary. And that boundary is taqwa, or God consciousness. So in our cooperation, yes, we, we, we draw in other people into our, uh, into our stratosphere. We, we hold them close to us, we work with them, but then we have to always remember that it's with fearing Allah that we do that as well. So it's not completely unlimited, you know, we have, we have to fear Allah in the process as well. So right now, uh, I think we've had a lot to think about because the second half of this is much more about, inshallah, thinking about how we move forward 
Okay, so we've identified the problem. We want to think about how we move forward. So I'm going to give a five minute break. I want everybody back here at, by eight o'clock, inshallah. There is a space downstairs for those who wish to pray, who haven't prayed Asr yet. So please do take uh, advantage of that facility. Jazakumullah uh, khair. And inshallah, we'll see you after the break. Assalamu alaikum so we've heard a lot already about um, the, the, the problems that we're facing, the different aspects, how a lot of the problems that we're facing are indeed, you know, what we would term structural. And we need to think about it beyond the limited scope of just saying, well, it's about torture or it's about wars. In fact, you know, even the algorithms that we're interacting on a daily basis through our Google searches are problematic and things that we need to think about. And you know, Masha Dr. Latif, he really, um, I think, brought us to a very good point, which is to say that it's not just about the issues that we personally face in our lives. It's about the whole range of issues that we see in society. You know, we can't talk about Guantanamo and, and be concerned about social justice without thinking about things like food banks, for example, and what leads, you know, uh, people within a so-called developed country to have to go to a food bank and collect free food. So all of these issues are are important to think about. Um, now our next speaker uh, is uh, Brother Shukur Rahman, uh, Ustaz Shukur Rahman, who has a traditional Islamic education from Syria, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, and specializes in the field of Quran, uh, theology, and jurisprudence. He has a master's in applied linguistics and he's the senior advisor at the Islamic Council of Europe. Now, uh, before Brother Shakur speaks, I want to read out the, uh, the lesson that I thought related to his topic, which is uh, lesson 17. Listen for dangerous words. So Timothy Snyder says, be alert to the use of the words extremism and terrorism. Be alive to the fatal notions of emergency and exception. Be angry about the treacherous use of patriotic vocabulary. And the reason why I thought about this lesson in particular is because Brother Shakur is going to talk about the narrative and the mechanisms of oppression. Like, how do we identify, uh, you know, what, what almost the vocabulary of an oppressor is or what their mechanism of, of oppression is? How do we identify who these people are? And then how do we respond to them, especially from our own traditions, from the Islamic tradition? So, Brother Shakur, if you could please come up and join us. Zakallah khair. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam and tasliman kathira ama ba'd. Well, praise belongs to Allah. We praise him and we send Allah's peace and blessings upon his final messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now firstly, every single one of us knows the famous hadith where the Prophet ﷺ passes on his legacy to every single one of us and tells us that it's not for a particular section of our community to stand up against what we see of any type of a dhulm. Whatever it may be, the Prophet ﷺ, as we all know, said, مَنْ رَأَ مِنْكُمْ مُنْكَرًا Whoever sees from amongst you, any single one of you, if he sees an evil, then he must change it and order a command from the Prophet ﷺ. And then the Prophet ﷺ says, بِيَدِهِ Let him change it in the most active way possible, which is with your hand. And if he is not able to do so, فَبِلِسَانِهِ And then 
let him at least reject it with his speech. And if he's not able to do this, then at least let him hate it with his heart. And this is the weakest of faith. We know that this obligation upon us is the thing which has made this ummah the greatest ummah that will ever be present on this earth. As Allah said, كُنْتُمْ خَيْرَ أُمَّةٍ أُخْرِجَتْ لِلنَّاسِ تَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ Why did Allah in this verse actually specify ordering the good and forbidding the evil over believing in Allah? Because this is specific for our nation. There's no way that this nation can stand up and see evil and then keep silent about it. This is a mandate from Allah upon every single one of us. There must be something that we're actively doing. If we don't, we're actually passively agreeing to the dhulm that is present around us. And in the communities and the societies and the world that we live in right now, we're becoming desensitized from all of the dhulm around us. We don't even recognize it as dhulm anymore. It's become the norm. And this is because we've neglected this obligation which is upon every single one of us. If we're not actively rejecting this dhulm, if we're not actively doing something about it to change it, then we've actually internalized it, accepted it, and then allowed it to spread. Now, dhulm in itself has two components here. You're taking the right of someone. You're abusing someone. But there's something greater than that, that many times we don't even realize. It is we are accepting someone to be brazen and bold in manifesting their disobedience to Allah. That is the greatest thing that we should reject. Allah has made it so powerfully stated in this hadith Qudsi, where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, Inni harramtu dhulma, sorry, the Prophet Sallallahu says that Allah says. So it's not the Prophet Sallallahu speaking. It's Allah speaking. Inni harramtu dhulma ala nafsi. This is so, such a treacherous and horrific thing to do. Dhulm. Any type of oppression. That Allah said, I made it haram upon myself. Allah made it haram upon himself. How dare you do it? It's so evil and vile. Allah obligated staying away from dhulm upon himself. How vile and evil it is. And you're going to do it? You're going to stand in front of Allah and challenge him and say, yeah, i got no care for you. And a person who stays silent upon any type of dhulm is actually endorsing that dhulm, is actually part and parcel of that dhulm. And it's far worse than that. What we're feeling now of this oppression and it's spreading all over the place. The Prophet Sallallahu he actually mentions, in the nas idha al-zalim, the people, if they see the zalim, the oppressor, and they recognize the oppression. Yeah, you might be excused if you didn't recognize that particular thing as oppression. That's why there's people there to remind you. Hang on, this feeds into that. And that's what it causes. And the consequence is dhulm for not only you, but for a whole generation of people or the whole of humanity. You might be excused. But it's so bold and brazen right now, there's no excuse for any one of us. What's the consequence? If you see it, and then the people, what do they do? 
they leave the zalim to oppress. They don't take him by the hand. They don't stop him and prevent him. What's the consequence? That Allah will cover them all with a punishment from him. Allah covers them all. Why? They were all complicit. They were all complicit in that dhulm by not actively rejecting it. Now, when we think about this, every single one of us has a role to play. Some of us can speak, some of us can write, some of us have been given skills, some of us have been given money, some of us have been given influence. There's something that every single one of us can do. If we don't do it, we have failed in our obligation towards Allah. Forget anything else. Towards Allah, we have failed in the obligation that He has mandated upon us. If you're not doing something, you've accepted that dhulm. You've given it a rubber stamp. How could we give a rubber stamp to someone coming out so bold, not caring, let alone humanity, not caring that Allah doesn't count and I can do as I please and therefore I can oppress anyone I want. The ridiculous nature of this, a Muslim accept it. How can a Muslim accept it? The legacy of the Prophet ﷺ. Not only the Prophet ﷺ, every single Prophet. If you look at the story where Surah Al-Qasas, where Anas, he recited for us at the beginning. What was it? The legacy of every single Prophet. There's always a tyrant. Spreading dhulm, establishing dhulm. There's an establishment behind that dhulm. And then Allah sends a messenger to correct that dhulm, to stand up against that dhulm. What happens? Yes, it's not an easy time. There's going to be oppression. There's going to be a challenge. There's going to be that war between good and evil to establish justice. That's the sunnah of Allah. That's what Allah wants from this ummah, specifically. So the, the way we look at the whole issue is, there's no way of eradicating it. But the mandate upon us, the legacy that we have been handed down from the Prophet ﷺ, from Adam ﷺ, in fact, what Allah wants us to establish on this earth is do something about it, that which is in your ability and capacity. If you fail from that, then realize that Allah is not going to excuse you. He will make you part and parcel of that dhulm and therefore you deserve the punishment or some of it in this world and perhaps in the next. It is that grave. It really is. So some of us, if we have influence, we need to speak up against the dhulm that we see. Whether it be Trump or whether it be some other tyrant or whether it be on a small individual level. If we don't do it, we failed in a huge obligation. A huge obligation. Something that Allah has distinguished this ummah, this ummah specifically, such that he described us with this statement. Kuntum khayra ummatin linnas, because you do this. So if you don't do it, you don't deserve the legacy of the Prophet It's as simple as that. And as grave as that. May Allah forgive us our shortcomings.
and enable us to stand up to every type of dhulm. Wa sallallahu wa wa ala Muhammad. I think, uh, you know, part of what Ustaz uh, Shakur is saying is that, you know, there are all of these kind of mechanisms of oppression that exist, and we have, a, we have a role to play in relation to that. But at the end of the day, we're individuals, right? And as individuals, we have our, our own personal ethics, and that we have to kind of uh, abide by and think about and be responsible for. And so the, our next speaker is going to speak about a very important matter in relation to that. But let me just introduce him first. It's Imam Shakil Beg. Uh, he studied Islamic studies uh, for five years at Medellin University. He's been the uh, Imam at Lewisham Masjid for the last 20 years. And, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with Lewisham Masjid, mashallah, it's one of the beacon mosques in the whole of the UK. Like if you wanted to find a mosque that really represented, in my view, what it means to practice Islam, you know, as a masjid, not just as a place of prayer, it's Lewisham Mosque, you know, people who take their obligations to the whole of society seriously. And like, it's a very remarkable space. And for those of you who haven't been there, I do recommend you going down there and visiting the masjid. So, before I talk about what Imam Shaquille is going to gonna tell, tell us about, the lesson that I was thinking about in relation to Timothy Snyder's book is lesson number five, which is remember professional ethics. Okay, and I'll get on to how this links in a second. Snyder says, when political leaders set a negative example, professional commitments to just practice become more important. It is hard to subvert a rule of law state without lawyers or to hold show trials without judges. Authoritarians need obedient civil servants and concentration camp directors seek businessmen interested in cheap labor. As an individual, you have a role to play. And just because you are a lawyer in the employ of the state, if you obey a law that's authoritarian and unjust, then you become part of the system. So your personal ethics go out of the window and you become a clog. So Imam Shaquille is going to speak to us about the advice that Rukman gives to his son, which is so pertinent to this, because it's about what? It's about being an individual in a world that is trying to take you in multiple different ways. And inshallah, hopefully, we'll uh, learn a bit more about that. Zabhan khair. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya wa al-mursaleen nabina Muhammad. All praise belongs to Allah Jalla wa ala, and peace and blessings of Allah be upon all the prophets of Allah and the last and final messenger of Allah, the Imam of the messengers, the best of the messengers, our leader and beloved Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sallam. Firstly, brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Secondly, shukr and gratitude to the organizers cage the supporters Islam 21C and the guest speakers that have preceded me. I usually do a lot of, of course, classes and khutbahs in the masjid, but externally it's with non-Muslims. So I usually start with a round of applause, but I'm scared you guys are going to refute me. <laughs> so what I'm going to say is, firstly for cage, takbir. And then for Islam 21st century, takbir. 
and then for those speakers that preceded me, takbir. Brothers and sisters, very briefly, touching on what all the speakers have touched on. Trump, and as Brother, Muaz, um, Brother Muazza mentioned, is a system and administration. Now, briefly reflecting on him, this individual is a racist. This individual who, in 2017, in a rally, Charlottesville, where a car rammed itself into counter-protesters, protesting against racism and the far right, this car killed a person injured 19. What did he say? There's good on both sides. This man who, in his administration, of course, following the Obama administration, the number of killings of Afro-Americans until, you know, people started having smartphones and recording, we were oblivious to it. You had a killing in 2016 before he became president. He became president in 2000 and the end of 2016, November. So around June or July, a man is stopped because his rear light is not working by the name of Philando Castile. And I would say, please go home and watch this video. Stopped, and the police officer questions him. He gives a piece of paper and politely says, police officer, I'm a licensed armed carrier and I'm carrying a licensed arm. Bang, 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 shot dead. What is also more horrific is that his partner and child, the child, maybe two or three saying, mom, be quiet, because they're gonna shoot you. The child has been systemized to accept what's happening because that child is scared what's gonna to happen to my mom and others. And in 2017, Trump being the president of USA, the police officer is cleared. You have the rise of Islamophobia, the Muslim travel ban. Anas started off with Quranic recitation from Surah Al-Qasas. Taseen Meem, Tilka Ayatul Kitab Al-Mubeen. Taseen Meem, the letters. These are the verses of the clear book, Al-Quran Al-Kareem. Natlu alayka min Naba'i Musa wa Fir'aun. We relate to the story of Moses and Fir'aun. Bilhaqqi liqawmi yu'minun. For those who, in truth, for those who believe. And then Allah Ta'ala says, Inna Fir'aun ala fil-ard wa ja'ala ahlaha shi'a. He's transgressed upon earth and divided the people. As Trump does with his wall and the Mexicans and the blacks and the whites and so on. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَسْتَضْعِفُ طَائِفَةً مِّنْهُمْ But there's a special focus of Fir'aun on the Bani Israel, the Israelites. Trump has a focus on us. And as Muazza mentioned, it's the administration and we have no issues with America. The rapper Loki has said to me, the rapper Loki said, I ain't against America, America's against me. And me and we, as Muhammad Ali said, special emphasis on the Muslim community and the Muslim people. And likewise now recently, what are we hearing? Islam is beautiful. Our deen is beautiful for all times. Maybe we didn't know about this hadith. مَنْ فَرَّقَ بَيْنَ الْوَالِدَةِ وَوَلَدِهِ فَرَّقَ اللَّهُ بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَ أَحِبَّتِهِ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ The one who separates a mother from a child, Allah would separate him or her from his beloved on the day of judgment. The separation of migrant children, four or five years old from their parents, zulm to a max. And as Ustad Shakur mentioned, Sheikh Shakur, 
Zulm, that's not us. Whether it be for Muslims or non-Muslims, as Ustav Sheikh Dr. Uthman Latif mentioned, a deen of rahmah and mercy. Ya ibadi inni haramtu dhulma ala nafsi wa ja'altu baynakum muharrama fala tadhalamu. Oh, my servants and slaves, I made dhulm haram upon myself and made it haram upon yourselves, so do not wrong one another. Coming to my last and final point that Ustaz Asi mentioned for me to focus on. And that's interesting. The advice of Luqman salam to his son. Ya Bunay. Bunay has a meaning of, in the Arabic language, they call it tasgheer. You can say Ya Bani. Why is Bunay used? It could be out of love, that even though it's an older child, but out of love, I'm calling him Bunay, making him feel more closer to me. Or it could be that the child is actually very young. Ya Bunay, aqim salah establish the salah, and then what? Interestingly, interestingly, some of us, firstly, good to see youngsters here. Good to see youngsters here. Some of us have this sense concerning oppression. We shouldn't speak. We shouldn't protest. And it's interesting, those who tell us not to speak and protest are who? It's like Malcolm X said. He said, they tell you to turn the other cheek. When you're slapped, you're supposed to turn the other cheek and give the other cheek, and they say it's the teaching of Isa alayhi salam. When Isa alayhi salam stood against the Pharisees and the Romans, they tell you to turn the other cheek, who? The slave master. Same today, those who don't want us to protest and speak up are the oppressors themselves. And they will tell you it's not the methodology of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa or his companions, that's a lie. Ya Bunay, he's teaching his children, our youngsters. So when we tell our children, shut up, be quiet, stay home, stay quiet, don't engage. Don't get involved with these organizations that are challenging the system and challenging oppression. We're not following Luqman salam's advice. We're not following the legacy of Prophet Muhammad والسلام, and his companions radiallahu anhum ajma'in. Ya Bunay, aqim salah wa'mul bil ma'roof, wanha anil munkar. Command the good, Forbid the evil. Yes, Dr. Salman, the system, the mass communication system is a messed up, oppressive system. Large, on a large scale. It's the Goliath. We need to be the Davids. And if it's there overseeing us and our mass and our communication, Allah Ta'ala is above them seeing what they're doing. And then Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala tells us, be patient. Be patient for what you face. Because that's part of your determination and your iman and your steadfastness. Quickly, side point. We had some discussion on anti-blackness in the last few weeks. Or month or so. Touching on what Dr. Uthman mentioned. The Afro-American community, the Muslim Afro-American community is around 20%. When they were targeted, or black people are targeted, or the Mexicans and Hispanics that are being targeted, what are Muslims supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? What is our faith and iman about? Does it have to be when it's only us? Stephon Clark, March 2018, a month or so before the month of Ramadan, 22-year-old, 
in the back garden of his grandmother. A Muslim, a black Muslim with two kids is shot 20 times. 20 times. So part of justice that we stand, you know why I was happy when I was invited? Brother Azad contacted me. I said, we're showing, we're being leaders. Tired of us going some, under somebody else and they're leading. When leadership is for us, let's lead people in justice and goodness and stand up against oppression because the messengers of Allah Ta'ala and the advice of Luqman to his son is we need to be commanding the good, forbidding the evil and be leaders in the society. Zakumullah khair for your time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Zakumullah khair Imam Shakil. Always one of the few speakers you never actually have to remind about, you know, what the timing is, mashallah. Zakumullah uh, khair, really, uh, you know, I think everything has really, all the talks together have led up to this moment, which is to um, invite our next speaker, who's uh, Brother Muhammad Rabbani, uh, who's the International Director of CAGE. Uh, he's also a convicted terrorist. Uh, <laughs> just to cl clarify, he was, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was convicted of not handing over his, uh, his password. Um, and, you know, for good reason, because he was d protecting the confidential uh, information of a client of ours. And so rather than hand that over and potentially allow for our client to be harmed, he stood up against an oppressive law. And so, you know, when, when he gets his conviction and he comes out of the courtroom, you know, let's be honest, white Twitter went crazy because they saw images of people like us clapping and cheering and they couldn't understand it. All these people say, literally on Twitter tweeting, we don't understand why are all these people cheering? This guy just got convicted of terrorism. <laughs> but this is the Izza, right? That we feel for doing the right thing. And that's why lesson number eight from Timothy Snyder's book, as soon as I read it, I said to myself, this is Brother Rabbani. Lesson number eight is stand out. And he says, someone has to. It is easy to follow along. It can feel strange to do or say something different. But without that unease, there is no freedom. Remember Rosa Parks. The moment you set an example, the spell of the status quo is broken and others will follow. This is a remarkable lesson. Brother Rabbani is going to speak to us, inshallah, about you know, how we stand out and how we show courage in the face of so much adversity. So, Brother Rabbani, Zakala Khaira, please. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Alhamdulillahir Rabbil Alameen, Wala Aqibati Lil Muttaqeen, Wala Udwana Illa Ala Abdalameen, Wa Sallallahu Ala Nabiina Muhammad Wa Ala Alihi Wa Ashabihi Ajma'een. Assalamu Alaikum Wa Rahmatullahi Wa Rakatuhu. In 1964, one night when uh, after work there was a woman going home, 3 a.m. She was working in a bar and uh, she got home. On the way, uh, she was attacked by a person. The attack continued for a long time. There were people awake at that time. And later, police investigations established that at least 37 people witnessed that moment. How many of them intervened and saved her? Take a guess. None. Okay. 37 people actually witnessed this murder taking place. Nobody intervened. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, we've heard already from some of the earlier speakers, when you see an evil, you have to act. You have to practically change that evil. 
It's only if you don't have ability, then you speak with your tongue. If you don't have ability to do that, then hate it in your heart. And that's the weakest of Iman. In the story of the people of the Sabbath, they were commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to do the, 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 the fishing. And uh, they tried to circumvent the laws. And as you know, Allah's curse befell them. One group of people said, tried to stand up and stop those people from doing wrong. Another group stood up and tried to stop those people from stopping the wrongdoers. They were saying, look, these people are going to be punished anyway. Why are you telling them to stop? And they replied, as you know in the Quran, uh, Two reasons. We're speaking now so that, inshallah, on the day of judgment, we will be excused in front of Allah. We couldn't physically stop them, but we had to at least speak out. You know, stand up for our ethics and the moral position and make that clear. And secondly, maybe some will be swayed, some will be influenced. That's up to Allah if He wants to change their hearts. But let us speak, let us uphold morality, ethics, and do the right thing. What is it that stops people from taking action? What's the number one reason? What, what comes to mind? Fear. Fear. Does anybody have any other reasons? Why, 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 do, why do people not act? Busy? I'm going to just take these two things, yeah? In the, in the uh, example of the lady that I gave, Kitty Genovese, there were psychological studies also done to try and understand 37 people witnessed, but they did nothing. And other studies thereafter, there's a famous study of the Stanford prison, prison uh, experiment, you can look it up. And several have established that, why is it that people don't actually take action? And it's these two reasons. Number one is, they're afraid of the consequences, that if I was to intervene, that attacker may attack me. He may see where I live or may do something. They'll come up with all sorts of reasons why they shouldn't act. Secondly, is what they call the bystander effect. Now, there's a lot of other people. Surely someone else is going to do it. Why, why should I? So what we need to do is to cure these two problems. If we're going to make any change. I don't have a grand plan and solution. But I've got a couple of things that we can do. And it begins with curing these two issues. One is fear. And the other one is the bystander effect. And the antidote to fear is something called courage. That's the medicine. That's what's going to cure um, fear. We have hundreds of types of fears. How many of them were we born with? Again, there's studies that have been done into this, believe it or not. How many of these fears, the fear of flying, the fear of darkness, the fear of spiders, the fear of losing our wealth, the fear of being attacked. I mean, how many of them were we born with? Does anybody know? We, we were born with some, actually. Two. What, what are they? Perfect. We were born with fears, and but only two. Only two fears. Every single baby has this innate uh, thing inside it. Fear of loud noise, which creates a reflex, and fear of being dropped. 
okay, where, where it starts to grab onto something. Everything else, every other fear is acquired. Okay, everything else is acquired. The problem we've got in our situation right now, we have acquired so many fears, and most of them are irrational. They're not even real. Some of them are real. A lot of them are just cooked up in our head, in our mind. And this is the way of shaitan. That's what Allah tells us. This is shaitan creating. I mean, that, that is shaitan. He will inspire fear of his awliya in you. Don't fear him. Fear me if you're true believers. So, and Imam Ibn Qayyim taught us many centuries ago, that which you fear will come to control you. If you allow yourself to fall into fear of something, anything, that thing will control you. The way of true dignity and liberation is to release yourself from fear of all things except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The three things I wanted to say is um, three steps we can take. And it's very simple. And it all is actually things that you and I can do from now, right now. And it's to do with your mind and your heart. Really. Because that's where the change has to happen. The first thing is we need to inculcate, create a shift in our thinking. And the shift that we need to create is move away from or build on top of what we already do, something called altruism. Altruism means what, brothers, sisters? Selflessness, being generous, caring about others. Alhamdulillah, our ummah, mashallah, is a generous ummah. Its characteristic is rahmah and generosity, compassion. Just in one month, Ramadan, we give a hundred million pounds in sadaqah. Just in one month, only from Britain. We are, mashallah, generous ummah. What we need to do is build on top of that something called heroism. Not just altruism, but heroism. Is it heroic for a person to open up their phone and send off 50 quid to let's say a humanitarian charity that's going to give medicine to some people who are dying in Syria. Is that an act of heroism? Well, be brave. Give me the answer. No. Well, okay. Depends how much you got. That's a good point. <laughs> well, I would argue even it's not heroism. Why not? Why isn't it heroism? Is it not heroic? If you see you're going out the street today and you see that there's someone who's fallen over and you help them up and you, you know, help them on their way. Is that heroic? Why not? Because you're not risking anything. This is the most important thing. We have developed a culture of being generous and compassionate, but to the exclusion of being courageous. But our ummah, prophethood, sahaba, all of this, their example that we see is one that combines the two. Being selfless and acting out of compassion for others, but in the face of risk, in the face of harm. When these two combine, we're going to begin our way out of this predicament that we see around us. So this is number one uh, thing. I'm going to quote a uh, professor, uh, Philip Zimbardo. He said, uh, heroism is different from altruism. Why, where altruism emphasizes selfless acts that assist others, heroism entails the potential for deeper personal sacrifice. The core of heroism revolves around the individual's commitment to a noble purpose and the willingness to accept the consequences of fighting for that purpose. 
So this is number one. Secondly, we have to, let me just summarize that into four points. It's got to be selfless, has to involve some form of potential risk or harm. And three, it, it, it can be active or passive. That's the other thing. You can do heroic acts passively. There's a brother I met just here in this event. He told me, I'm going to be uh, leaving my job. I said, why? Because that job, has, they're now forcing me to deal with interest. Now, that does take courage because it involves some loss of status and wealth and career prospects and many things. So it's everyday acts of heroism like that that we need to inculcate within ourselves, within our mindset. And the fourth characteristic is it can also, it can be a sudden act. You don't have to Im imagine yourself that I I'm a hero or superhero and all I do is save people and rescue them. No, we're all ordinary people. But all of a sudden, an issue will emerge in front of you do the right thing. Okay, be brave, be courageous, and do the right thing. Don't worry about the consequences. Of course, don't be irrational and naive, but also don't be cowardly. This is not from our, from our religion. So, number one is shift the mindset from altruism to heroism. Secondly, shift our role. We heard from Dr. Uthman Latif. We're not like those bystanders of the, of the day of Sabbath that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about. We need to change our role that we are rescuers, protagonists. We are the heroes of our own story. We keep hearing the society telling us we're aggressors. We keep hearing Muslims we hang around with telling us we're victims. We're neither. You know, we're Muslims with an agenda for change. We have something to give to humanity. We should act from there, from there, from that core belief. So this change, we need to again create. Change the approach, their behavior from one of bystanding to one of intervening based on our moral and ethical principles. And lastly, we need to sh a shift in our approach to social change. Because of some of these mindset issues, our leaders have been uh, promoting a particular approach to social engagement. An approach which is characterized by conforming, complying, and capitulating to society's expectations of the Muslims. This approach has to change because this approach has not given us anything in the last 15 years. So all, it is responsibility of all of us to speak, engage, also take action right now yourself. Whenever you see a proposal or an initiative that is always seeking to keep Muslims disempowered, reject that, advise against it. Speak to the, your local organizations, your masajid, your ulama, your imams, okay, um, to take action. And the, the direction we want to head is one which is based on fortitude, engagement, number one. You have to engage. You can't disengage. But based on adhering to our moral principles, having the fortitude to keep to the path and not compromising on our principles and who we are, Okay. So we need, to, we need a new political vision. So those are the three things. I feel one of the best verses that, that sums this up is in Surah Ali Imran. There's three things that they're, that they're characterized with. Uh, you know, how many times the prophets, they fought in the way of Allah. And along with them, there were bands of godly men. There were people along with the prophets fighting and supporting them. Uh, in the cause of Islam, in the cause of justice. And Allah says three things about them in, the, in, in that verse. 
They were not demoralized about what befell them in the way of Allah. As you heard from Imam Shakil, things will befall you. But be courageous and be brave. Do acts of heroism. Let those things come and not deter you. So number one is, they are not demoralized in the way by the, by the things that befell them in the way of Allah. Secondly, They did not become weak. They did not lose their determination. And thirdly, They did not relent to the oppressors. When it came to facing off the tyrants, they stood firm. They did not relent. They did not give up. Allah loves those who have sabr. And this, these three things are the definition of sabr. Sabr is three levels. The sabr of the ordinary people is what we hear in Surah Baqarah. All the rest until the end. The sabr of the leaders who bring change is the one that I mentioned now, this verse. If we want to bring change, you want to change society, take it in a different direction, you have to have this level of sabr. And the sabr of the Anbiya, it's something we will not attain. We won't, we won't reach that, but we aspire. Okay? May Allah give tawfiq, inshallah. I'm going to finish there. Sorry, I had action points uh, to mention. In CAGE, we try our best to adhere uh, with the support of all of you and our ulama and our elders to advise us. We're trying to uh, actualize some of these values. Um, we are, of course, we need, we need your help. We are appealing to you to join in that struggle. We've got two things today, inshallah, we'd like to invite you to. Firstly is um, register and become a volunteer. You'll be put on a program, inshallah. We're developing a program to train and prepare so that we can take action, organize more actions, inshallah, and change and give, give confidence to the ummah and empower them. So there, will, there are, there's a, a volunteer sign-up uh, table. Please just you know, share your details and try and at least express, let us know that you're interested. Secondly is tomorrow, you know, there's going to be a big rally, a big demo. We felt it's important that Muslims have a space like this and we set our own narratives. The others, they're doing it and we should join in. So we're looking for 20 brothers to join us in this action. We have, um, we're going to be, like Brother Muadam mentioned, the orange men. Right? We've got jumpsuits, orange. 20 brothers to come forward and uh, sign up for this. You don't have to give a speech. You don't have to go and do anything. You just turn up. Okay? And we will organize uh, within that demo, inshallah. So no fundraising now. Hands up. Who's going to be the 20? Who's going to agree? Bismillah, one. Two. Bismillah. Three. Just, not for 40 days. Just, uh, <laughs> just turn up tomorrow. Jazakumullah khair, sister. Okay. Okay, khair. Let me, let me first get these 20 brothers. Uh, otherwise, they're going to change their mind. You know, you know, there's a, Dr. Uthman was telling me, you know the story that I mentioned at the beginning, Kitty Genovese? There's a book written about her, 37 Witnesses. The last line of that book says, because all of them, they saw it and they heard it, what was happening outside, but they never acted. The last line of that book says, don't listen to the whispers that are telling you to shut the window. All right? So don't listen to the whispers. We need 20 names, inshallah. Uh, what, 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 what? No, hold on a second. Layla? 
Dr. Leila. Alright, two o'clock, inshallah. So that's four, five, mashallah. Jazakumullah khair. Six, Allahu Akbar. Hang on, you can't put twice, bro. <laughs> You're gonna. Huh? Yes, there's gonna be Jumu'ah there as well, yeah. Okay, good. So let, let me let me uh, stop it. Stop there, inshallah. Uh, don't 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 tell, listen to the whisper telling to close the window. Um, go and uh, go to the back of the table, inshallah, for the brothers who want to sign up, inshallah. We're looking for twenty brothers to join us, inshallah, in that action. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah khair, brother Rabani. So, you know, it's been a a very insightful evening uh, for me, uh, at least anyway. I'm sure everybody's taken away a lot from all the different speeches. I think one of the things that we have to do, I guess, as a final thought uh, about the evening, is that we have to turn our view of oppression from the top to the bottom, right? Because what happens is that we get so overwhelmed by the information that we get, right? So this many drone strikes, or this many detainees, or you know, you know, this many um, migrants drowning in seas, or so on and so forth, right? That we forget human stories are at the center, at the center of every single one of these. So what we should do instead is we need to change our optics about all of this to think about always when you when you see a statistic like that, don't just think about what the statistic is. Think about what the life of the individual who suffered at the end of that was. And when we think about these people as human beings, we have a much better chance of empathizing with them and moving ourselves to action. Because too often we get caught in this logic of statistics, right? And statistics, by their very nature, are dehumanizing. It removes that human aspect of what we're thinking about, right? So that's, I guess, my last recommendation from this evening. Let's think about human beings, and not just Muslims, let's think about everybody who suffers, and even if it's only one person who suffers it, that one person should be enough to move all of us to action. That is the standard by which we operate. This is the characteristic of the Muslim. This is what we should be inculcating. Finally, really, Jazakumullah to all of you so much for taking your evening out to, to spend it with us, to support us and our work. Jazakumullah to uh, the, the sponsors Islam 21C for joining CAGE this evening and for providing their words and their wisdom uh, and, their, and their support. You know, and to all, obviously to all of our speakers, please make du'a for all of them. Finally, I'd like to ask uh, one of the uh, imams to come and make du'a, uh, inshallah. Um, you guys have got to slug it out between yourselves. Shaykh Shakur, apparently. Oh, right, okay, khalas then, Imam Shakil. <laughs> you got beaten with the Imam status. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma rabbal nas. Nas'aluka bi asma'ika al-husna wa sifatika al-ula tu'izzal islamu al-muslimin. Allahumma nsuri ibadika al-muwahideen fi kulli makan ya rabbal alameen al-mustada'afeen. في الشام في سوريا في 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 بورما في العراق في اليمن وفي كل مكان وفلسطين اللهم انصرهم ووحد صفوفهم وألف بين قلوبهم يا رب العالمين إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم عليك بالظالمين اللهم يا عزيز يا جبار دمرهم تدميرا ومزقهم تمزيقا ورد كيدهم في نحورهم يا عزيز يا جبار إنك سميع مجيب قريب وصل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Amen.